we had to stop it at some point, okay? It's very powerful, isn't it? Uh, I love it when we can get live footage. It's so much more engaging, isn't it? Well, good morning. Glad to have you here with us this morning. Over the past uh, year, we've given, uh, I guess, a theme, Quietly Loud. And so every few months, we'll come back and just have it as a touch point. And it will also inform some of the other series that we're doing. But effectively, it begs and asks the question, what is a Jesus follower? How does a Christian inhabit a world that's often now conflicted and polarized and seems to be pulling in different directions? How do you do that? How do you do that well? So today, what I'd like to do is actually just pause for a moment and revisit this quietly, loud. If there's two words that have been polarizing us, that have kind of focalized the one of the challenges I think that's inhabiting our world right now, it would be these two words. The tug of war between conservative and progressive. The idea that these two words represent actually ideologies that inform so much of the conversation and the dialogue that's happening right now. I know this to be true because I put my foot in it around Brexit time. I remember having a conversation with two uh, inner city London dwellers. Well, it wasn't really a conversation because I overheard them talking and they were really upset. They were upset that the referendum for them had been lost, that Brexit was going to happen. And I could hear them kind of expressing their anger towards one another that went something like this. Those politicians, they pulled the wool over the eyes of so many different people. They lied to us, which as an Australian, I had to kind of chuckle. Um, and, and then they started to say, what we need is another referendum. Referendum, and it was at this point I couldn't help myself. I was there in the shop, and so I kind of just stepped in and I said, "You want to have another referendum on top of the other referendum?" They said, "Yes," because we was lied to. And I said, "Well, the only problem with that is if you have another referendum, then you have to have a, another referendum for the previous, and then another referendum. And where does it kind of stop?" Um, and wasn't it you guys who gave us democracy in the first place? <laughs> well, it was at that point they both turned on me then <laughs> and someone extracted me from that moment. I think it was one of my kids. But it just represented this idea of these two words. Well, in our common kind of cultural expression right now, conservative is negative backward and old and progressive is positive upward and new. In fact, it's the conservatives who think the progressives are naive and the progressives who think the conservatives are afraid. And there we are. The challenging thing about these two polarities, though, and the tug of war that exists is that it might cause us to miss a more probing question. The question is this. What are human beings like? And what's God like? What are human beings like? Because how you answer that question actually informs both of the ones above. So today what I brought with me in the time I have remaining is I brought a stone with me, a smooth stone. I remember as a young kid learning to, I guess, throw stones on the water and cause them to skim. <laughs> what I'd like to do is actually take a stone with me this morning metaphorically and cast it on the water and stop at five different places that start from the beginning and end up at a conversation at a well with Jesus and a woman. As I seek to answer the question, what are human beings like? And what's God like in response? So you ready? First stone as we cast it touches the water in a garden. 
And it's between two trees. And there's two early hominids by the name of Adam and Eve. And they're allowed to eat from any of the fruit. Bar one, there's one of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, which rightly gives God the prerogative to call the shots. What's right and wrong, good and evil, up and down. They're not allowed to eat of that one or touch it. Well, they're not allowed to eat of that one because that's God's call. And then there's another tree. It's the tree of life. So presumably they have access to that tree and they're allowed to eat from it and that actually sustains their bodies. And within that garden state, the story goes on and actually introduces another creature, a subhuman creature, a serpent who comes to Eve with a crafty question. And this is the nature of it. Did God really say that you must not eat from the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? It's the crafty question that is asked. Well, the reply of Eve goes like this. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. Actually, that's where the, the message has kind of hasn't been filtered down properly because that's an introduced idea. If you do, you will die. And the serpent replies, you will not die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat of it and you will be just like God, knowing both good and evil. And there in that place, in that narrative, it raised a provocative question. What is it about human beings that wants to be like God? Because that's the probing question, if you like, that the serpent was pushing towards. Don't you know that God is holding out on you? That essentially God is not good. And if you eat of this tree, you'll be just like him. Well, there's a half measure of truth in this because it says that she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it could give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she handed it to her husband and he ate it. And then the two of them instantaneously, they did not die their eyes were opened and God comes to them and says, why are you hiding like this? And then after that moment, there's a whole series of blame shifting and finger pointing and directives to one another and the whole thing unravels. Well, in the midst of that moment, God speaks to them and something shifted. Because he knows that if they were to eat from the tree that gives them eternal life and they actually are the ones who call the shots and he knows what they are essentially part of them alike, he wonders what would be the state of the world. And so something happens. He pushes them away from his presence. He stops access to that tree of life because he concludes, knowing what I know about them, if they have access to the tree of life, then they will be just like God calling the shots and it will not go well. So in that very moment though, when they turn away from God, yet he pauses for a moment and he says that the Lord God made some clothing for them from animal skins for Adam and for Eve. In the very moment in which humans turn away from God, it's as though God turns back towards them and clothes them because that's what he's like. The first stone. Second, as it skims the water, we're in a field. And it's just an adjacent story, the very next one. And in the very next one, you've got two men by the name of Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve, Cain is the worker of the fields. 
his, his harvest is something he puts all of his energy into. And Abel, Abel is the keeper of the flocks. And together they, they do their thing as farmers until one day their produce has, has been accumulating and they decide to take portion of it and offer it back to God as, a, as an act of, of worship. And it says that, that Abel brings the fat portions of the best of his flock whilst Cain, he brings some of his harvest. It says that God looks on the two of those and he actually affirms and receives Abel's but not Cain's. And when Cain realises this, it says this, that this made Cain really angry, very angry, and he looked dejected. That was the expression on his face, so much so that God came to him and said, why are you so angry? Why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. And then it goes on, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Because there's this thing called sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. How interesting. The very first moment this idea of sin is introduced into the Bible is this, this if you like, conflict between brothers. Cain could have gone and changed his behavior, but he's got this inner working of anger that's just boiling up inside of him. And so this word sin is introduced what is it? Well, it seems to be this inclination to want to call the shots, to want to determine what is right and wrong, good and evil, to believe lies about God that he's holding out. Something inside of, of Cain wants to get some sort of revenge and cause harm to someone else for no other reason apart from his sacrifice didn't to be accepted. And so the, there's this sin seems to be this, this image of an animal that's trying to actually take hold of and captivate. And God says, but you must go and control it. You must subdue it or else, well, it will not go well. Well... I was talking to someone just the other week. It was a funeral I attended from a, a, a former pastor that I grew up with when I was in my teens. He was the kind of man that would actually be able to do an amazing 15-minute pastoral visit. He, he could actually drop in, have a cup of tea, give you all a hug, tell you that God loves you and so did he, and then he'd be off again. And that was true for many people that he was actually part of pastoring and shepherding and encouraging and leading over many, many years. I remember talking to one of the ladies that was there that I grew up with. And she said, you know, towards my family, I never felt like I could receive his love. There was something that was actually blocking me. I said, really? She said, yeah, it's as though his hugs seemed to bounce off me. I said, why was that? She said, well, it's because... I didn't feel like I was actually doing the right thing by God. So there were some things in my behavior that I thought were kind of outside of what he wanted for me. And so I just felt like I wasn't worthy. You see, one of the lies about sin is that because of someone's inherent, if you like, Cain's inherent sinfulness, that he was worthless. Far from the truth. Actually, God's expression towards Cain is that whilst you might have these inclinations within you, your sinfulness doesn't equate to worthlessness. The very moment then, if you like, that Cain turns away from God and the consequences are, Cain, that the, the ground's no longer going to be productive and fruitful for you. You're going to be a wanderer over the land. He cries out, God, when people find me, that they will kill me. 
And God says, no. And he turns towards Cain and he says, I'm going to mark you, Cain, so that anyone who finds you, you will be protected. A garden, a field, and then a mountain. Here we are hundreds of years later. God's made a promise to a man by the name of Abraham that through him there will be a mighty nation that will be a light to the world and a blessing. And there they are in Egypt. And God actually calls them out and rescues them with a great, mighty, powerful arm. And in the midst of that place on the mountainside, one of the leaders by the name of Moses walks up onto the mountain and amidst the fire and the brimstone, he actually he receives some sayings of God, not so much commands, but sayings. And God says to Moses, I will be your God and you will be my people for I love you and I have called you out of Egypt. And if you would keep these sayings, you will reflect me into the world because that's what I desire. And so he gives, if you like, Moses 10 sayings, 10 commands, it's the nuance. And they're on two sides. And on one side, it says, what I want you to do is, I want you to think about your, your side conversations and your side relationships with the people next to you. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting. Could you imagine a world where there was no coveting? <laughs> How many marketing agencies would go out of business the next day, right? <laughs> uh, so could you imagine? So he says, I want you to do this the relationships adjacent to you. And then I want you to think about honouring up, not just honouring to the side, but honouring upwards. Honour mother, father. Keep the Sabbath, that rest day I have for you, the creation order. I want you to honour my name and I don't want you to, the greatest insult would be to go ahead and make other gods and go and chase after them to me. Do you think that you could do that? And all the people, they say, we like this. Because he says, if you do these things, it will go well for you and you will be a light that will reflect me into the world. And if you don't do these things, it will go bad for you in the midst of these, the world in which and the land in which you inhabit. And they all say, yes, we think we can do it, right? <laughs> which makes me think, right? They had one law at the very beginning. How did they do with that one at the very beginning? So now he gives them 10 what do you think the chances are? Right. And it's not like an exam question, an essay form where he says, would you just pick two of the any following 10 <laughs> and write on these? And so they say, yeah, we can. But they don't. You see, as time continues, as they start to turn away from God, he turns towards them by sending them a prophet. And then another one and another one to say, be like this, because this is what God is like. Be that to the person next to you. And they don't. So after time and time and time, they start to reflect the same darkness. They murder. And they become greedy and claim land and push other people off it. The widow and the orphan are crushed on the bottom. And injustice reigns. And the greatest insult of insult is that they finally go chasing after other gods. Now, God in this place isn't asking them to worship him because, because he has an ego that needs to be stroked. God understands this simple rubric. 
that you become what you worship. And so if you worship the almighty bottom dollar, sooner or later that will have an influence back upon you and you'll begin to see other people around about you according to their numerical value. If you worship sex, what will happen after a period of time is that you'll begin to see everyone through your eyes according to that rubric. And then you'll begin to dehumanize or classify them accordingly as objects for your desire. If social status is your thing that you pursue and you worship that, what will happen in your life as you give that power, it will exert a power back over you and Surely enough, there will be stratification of the relationships you have in the world around about you and, and you will begin to rank people according to what you think their worth and value is. But when you worship the one true living God who emanates goodness and rightness and mercy and justice, well, that will emanate, if you like, through you. You see, don't get me wrong here. Human beings can do incredibly good things. But the only problem is, is that my goodness runs out. You see, there's times in my life where I want to be patient. And I go, I'm going to be more patient. And, and then I have a tricky situation that arises and my patience runs out. There's times in which I say, let's practice mercy because that's a good thing. And then I'm confronted with challenging situations in which my mercy runs out. Does yours ever? And what I find in me is this, is that there's a will to do something, but there's a power sometimes that's lacking. And that's the moments in which I find myself calling out to God and saying, would you help me? The very moment that human beings turn away from God is the very instinctive moment in which God turns back because when it became so dark, he sent them third, fourth stone now away into exile. He said, the consequence is light cannot exist with darkness. You need to separate and go. But in that place, when they are in exile, far away from God in the north, they start asking, why do we keep on disobeying the things that we know are good and right and true that God calls us to do and to be? And in the midst of their heartache and their separation from God, as they call out, he sends word to them and says this. In the moment they've turned away, God turns towards them and says, for I know the plans I have for you, my people, because I remember the promise I made to Abraham, plans to not harm you, but plans to give you a future. And so in the midst of that place, he says, I know what the problem is, and I'm going to fix that too. And so through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to come into your lives and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols because I will do a reset in your life and I will do something internally that you cannot do for yourself. And then he goes on and says, and I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart because the, the issue of the matter is that you need a heart change. And you cannot do that yourself. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations because I will write it on your heart. And you will be soft towards me. And I'll be soft towards you because of what my spirit will do. It's as though God skims a stone through the history of 
human beings <laughs> and points a finger right on the issue at heart. And so here we are. We finally arrive at a woman at a well. Jesus had every opportunity to go around Samaria because it would have been less hostile. This is enemy-occupied territory, but it says he goes straight towards and you sense it's a well. Just like Jacob found a wife at a well, he finds another woman at a well and he has this conversation with her. You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Here she is wanting to push him away. But at the very moment that human beings want to push God away, what happens? He turns back towards them. He says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Now that seems like the most cheesiest line that someone could use. And I would ask you never to use this line when you are trying to talk about God if you ever want to in this because it works for him and probably not for you. But then she actually pushes back for a moment and, and he says this, but the time is coming indeed and it's here right now when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The truth about who God is, that he is good. The truth about who God is, that you can see revealed in me. And you'll do it in spirit because it's something that you cannot do for yourself because you will be infused with God's spirit and you will come alive to him. Well, in this very moment, something transpires. And this woman, believe it or not, believes it from the heart. And there's a spiritual transaction that we can't see, but we can see it marked on her face because she runs back to her, the village, the village that carries so much shame for her. And she says, I think I've just found the, the, some, the person we've been looking for, God's Messiah, the Christ. She says, come on back. You can discover for yourself because there's something that's actually taken place in her that softened her heart to Jesus and to God. And she's come alive it's as though God's kingdom has just, if you like, taken up residence in her mind and her body. And she's alive. And she's alive. And she's alive as if it's for the first time. <laughs> you see, the way in which our world answers this question about what are humans being like, uh, what are humans being like is that they want to say things like, well, we're... We always choose the good thing to do, and we minimize the bad sometimes. Whilst there are other people who say, well, we're just all, all bad and nothing good, and I find the behavior and the response of Jesus to carry both of these things to be true. The people are of infinite worth to him, but need of great repair. So people in our world, the answers that we get will be something like this. Oh, we'll just be nice to each other, <laughs> but there's no power for that. Or, or you'll have some other people say, well, we just need to educate people more. Well, education's great, but some of the smartest people in the world can do terrible things. Or, or maybe we can just write new laws, and that will stop people misbehaving. Well, you can try. But God's answer is this. Come and have a radical encounter with me, and I'll soften and change your heart. You see, when we go all the way back after we've skimmed the stone, 
to this question. I wonder if you get caught up in the conservative, progressive polarity, you'll always be caught in a tug of war. The deeper question that needs to be asked is in light of who Jesus is and what he's done in my life, what's worth conserving? And what's worth changing? Dan's going to come up right now. Because what we wanted to do this morning is create some space where you might be able to respond to God. If you like, one of the stories of the Bible is this, that every time human beings turned away from God, he reflexively turned back to them because that's what he's like. He's exceedingly kind and merciful and doesn't hold things against people and always gives them a way out because that's what he's like. I wonder if you're here this morning and you're like the woman at the well There's things in your life that you think, I cannot receive God's love because of things that are going on here. Well, that's just taking you back to a lie in the garden. It's not true. I wonder if you might hear Jesus' words to you this morning. That you might know living water. Wipes the slate clean. Fills you afresh. Maybe you've been following Jesus for some time. And he gives this amazing meal to his disciples. He says, what I'm going to do for you, you might really understand, but I'm going to die. I'm going to rise to new life. And it's going to pay a price that you can't pay. And when you meet together, I want you to do this in remembrance of me that I'm going to return, but also in recognition of what I've done. In fact, it'll serve for you like a reset moment. You know, those relationships, those adjacent ones, those longitudinal ones, the honoring one another. If those are out of kilter in your life, then when you come to participate in this meal, what I would like you to do is do a reset. I'd like you to bring that before me. And in the forgiveness I've offered you, I'd like you to extend it to someone else. Or maybe make a determination before God to make it right. And there'll be times in which what you might need to do is do some confessing to him and saying, God, I've got this wrong and I just ask for your forgiveness. And I thank you that you've already done that for me, but please would you come? And his promise and that his welcome is that he's done it all for you so that you can. And so you say thank you. One of the most profound things that you can do in this meal is pause before God and say thank you. And so as the musicians play in a moment, what I would invite us to do is to participate in a moment of communion. Maybe you're here and it's a brand new thing for you. There's some cards there. And if you would like to participate, then this morning what I'd invite you to do is, if for you it means that I want to thank Jesus for what he's done and maybe begin 
to walk towards him and receive him into your life, then I would invite you to join with us. Maybe for you and you're not in that space and the most appropriate thing would be to just watch. But for others of you, I'd invite you to quietly just go and take one of the wafers and a cup. And maybe in a two or three or maybe just by yourself, that we might spend some time this morning pausing before you eat and drink. Maybe there's some confessing. Maybe there's some resetting. Maybe there's some thanking. And to help you with that, we're going to have someone beside each table just to pray. And they'll be standing there. And I'd love it if we felt the freedom in this community that if a reset was appropriate for you, that you might just stand before them with your hands open and they're simply going to place a hand on your shoulder and say, I pray a prayer. God, would you help reset this relationship, this thing? You don't need to say what it is, but just reset. And that would be entirely appropriate. We don't want this place, this time to be rushed but we want it to be meaningful. So why don't, as the music carries us, when you're ready, stand up. Go and take the elements. Go and sit back down. And then you eat and you drink as you respond to him. Let's do that now.